Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. Thank you that you are aware of and concerned with all that is going on in our lives, all that is in our hearts. And so we ask that you would speak to us powerfully and prophetically. That as we open your word, that you would indeed open our hearts. And that the result would be that we trust you for some for the first time. And for those who know you, that they would trust you more. That our faith would be strengthened. Spirit of God, speak. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, there aren't many people who believe that they need to write a letter to Santa to get on his nice list. But unfortunately, there are many today who do believe that they need to write a letter of good deeds to God to get on his nice list. And this attitude is captured in the story of little Jimmy. Little Jimmy went to his mother demanding a new bicycle. His mother decided that he should take a long look at himself and the way that he acts and write a letter to Santa. But Jimmy, having just played a vital role in the school nativity play, decided to write a letter to Jesus instead. And he said this, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and would appreciate a new bicycle. Your friend, little Jimmy. But as Jimmy reflected on how he had really behaved throughout the year, he ripped up the letter and decided to give it another try. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year, and I would like a new bicycle. Yours truly, little Jimmy. Well, Jimmy knew that this wasn't totally honest either, and so he tore it up, and he tried again. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Can I please have a new bicycle? Signed, little Jimmy. But he tore up that third note, and in his frustration, Jimmy decided to go for a walk and to think about a better approach. And along the way, he passed by an old church and noticed a small statue of the Virgin Mary in front. And in a moment of inspiration, he jumped over the church fence, stuffed the statue of Mary under his coat, hurried home, hid the statue under his bed, and wrote one last letter. Jesus, I've broken almost all the commandments, but I'm desperate. 
if you ever want to see your mother again, you'd better send me a new bicycle. Yours truly, little Jimmy. (laughs) Now, I hear that story and I laugh because it's hilarious. But in many ways, the story reflects how I relate to God. And it may actually relate to the way in which you have found yourself approaching God. Oftentimes, we approach him on the basis of how we have done and what we can do. And at times, out of desperation, we seek to laughably almost manipulate God in order to get what we think we need from him. And it's in a season like this at Christmas time that we remember that the opposite is true. We come to God through faith. Trusting in what God has done and in what God can do. And that's what we're reflecting on today, this theme of faith. And we're doing it through this story of God's conversation with Abraham, who we often know and refer to as the father of faith. Because what happens in this conversation in Genesis actually becomes a link in a long chain that connects to what we celebrate at Christmas. The fulfillment of God's promises and the need for us to put our faith in them, in him, and not ourselves. We learn early on in the Bible that a beautiful way that God enters into relationship is often through promises of what he is going to do so that people can have hope, so that people can trust so that people can look forward. And many times as we read throughout the pages of Scripture, this promise is formalized in an agreement. And in the Bible, it's called a covenant. And this is what we find here in Genesis chapter 12. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, a promise made between God and Abraham. Covenants were well known in the ancient world. It was a binding agreement between two people. But here's what's unique. It is God who initiates this covenant. It's God who initiates the agreement. But my question for us this morning is why should we trust them? Why should we trust his promises? You may have been a Christian for a long time, but you've experienced pain in your own life, in your own family, amongst your own friends or in the church, whatever it might be. Maybe we've experienced broken promises from friends and family. We find ourselves being a little jaded when we come to church and we hear about the promises of God. I would go so far as to say some of us have developed a distorted view of God over the years. Not that you've necessarily changed your beliefs or what you understand Scripture to say, but functionally, for some of us, God is powerful, but he's not personal. He's very mighty, but you just don't know if he's going to be good to you. Some of us, on the other hand, believe he's very personal. He knows us, but he can't really do anything about it. Why should we trust him? Why in this Christmas season should we focus on faith? Well, let me just give you three reasons why this morning you should be encouraged in your faith, or if you're not yet a Christian, that you should place your faith in the promises of God. And the first is this. The first reason why you should put your faith 
And God's promise is because his promise is great. The context of this narrative is crucial. We have more in common with the ancient world than it often appears to be when we read the Bible. Because at this point in the book of Genesis, the world is in an absolute shambles. If you read about the context surrounding the time when Abram, or we know him as Abraham or Sarai, we'll call her Sarah as they are later named, they are living in a world that is totally disconnected. If you read the context, there is oppression, there is violence, there is evil, there is brokenness in the world. But not only is the whole society in a dark place, but Abraham and Sarah are also in a dark place both spiritually, but also practically. At this time, they are no doubt living in the same way that others lived in that time. And so they need to be drawn out in order to draw near. And so God says, look at verse 1 again of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God calls out this couple. God calls out Abraham and Sarah. And notice that when God calls out this couple, he's calling them not just out from a country, he's calling them out of idolatry because this was a land known for its idolatry. So he's calling them out of this spiritual darkness. But God not only calls people out, he also makes them a promise. Look at verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, this sentence is remarkable. And to grasp the greatness of what God says here, we must remember That not only were Abraham and Sarah in a dark place spiritually, they were also in a dark place practically. The text goes on to tell us that they are advanced in years. Childbearing is not an option for them at 75. Unable to have children, unable to have descendants. So in leaving their country of origin, they would surely come to a dead end. So when Abraham left this country, when he followed the call of God to leave this land, he did not just leave relational security, but also practical security. Because the way in which you made a life is you had descendants and they worked on your farm. Like there was no government care that they could provide for you. No stimulus check was coming from anywhere. Like you needed children. They needed to work on your land. This is how things were going to go forward. And God calls them out. And it's just Abraham and Sarah. Some of you are so familiar with the story. But we need to be reminded of the weight that they carried in this moment. I would just imagine that Abraham and Sarah felt that sense of helplessness as they packed their things and left their country. The only way in which I can think to relate is back to, you know, six years ago when many of you prayed for my wife and my children and I, when we literally sold everything in LA and we moved to London, we didn't know if our visas were going to get approved. Like we had no furniture. We didn't know where we were going to live. 
And I remember we were staying at my in-law's house and it was just a matter of 48 hours before we're gonna get on a plane and we're gonna move to London. And there's this moment that I have that oftentimes I didn't like to acknowledge publicly, but there's these moments I had after having prayer meetings and announcing, hey, we're gonna pray Reality Church London and giving this whole vision and connecting with people in London. I would wake up every morning going, what in the world am I doing? What have I done? And I remember the morning staying at my in-law's house just 48 hours before our flight. And I got up and I was reading my devotions and I read Genesis chapter 12. God called them out. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me, Tim, if I'm the one that called you, then I'm the one you need to trust. And it was like the supernatural peace. I know some of you have experienced that just washed over me. I went from being helpless to to hopeful. And no doubt that's what happened in this moment with Abraham and Sarah. Because in contrast to the hopelessness of their situation, God says, I will make you into a great nation. How remarkable it is for God to say such a thing to a couple who is barren a couple who is unable to have children, a couple who just left all of their security, how important it would have been to them and how important it is for us and for our faith. Because some writers say that the barrenness of Sarah was not only a reality for her, but a picture of us, a picture of humanity. Because without the promise of God, without the hope of God, there is no hope for us. I suppose some of you in this room may have experienced or know friends or family who have experienced actual barrenness, the inability to have children. If that's you or you know them, you know what this is like. But whether you've experienced this specific situation or not, we've all experienced other types of barrenness, spiritual barrenness, relational barrenness, whatever it may be. And as we approach this Christmas time when everyone's supposed to be like joyous and happy, it may be that you're just becoming aware of your own barrenness in your life. Maybe there's promises you've felt that God has made you and you just wonder like, God, where were you? Where have you been? And you hear a testimony of how God's showed up for so many other people. And you go, oh, that's nice. It's great for you. And when someone shares the testimony and everyone's clapping, you're like, so good. Oh, isn't it great? And everyone's like, oh my gosh, did you hear that story of how God provided every single prayer request for them? And you're like, yes, it's amazing. It's so good. I'm so happy for you. But what about me, God? Oh, how many times have we been in church? And we're like, oh, it's yeah, so good. Yeah about me. And your sermon notes kind of veer off. You're like, yeah, Abraham, whatever, blah, blah, blah. What about me? God, what's the deal? Why have you not come through for me? Where is it that my faith can be strengthened? Many of us have been there, that sense of barrenness, that's why we take this promise to light. His promise is great. There is this ray of light, of hope, and it comes in a covenant. And it is indeed great. It would have been remarkable enough to hear, I will make you 
a nation. But God goes further and says, I will make you a great nation. A word that would go on to describe the nation of Israel, both in its scope, but also in its significance. Abraham and his wife would become great. We would go on to see, if you read the rest of Genesis, they they would become pillars in a problematic society. They would become these prophetic visionaries in a violent world, living this radically countercultural life in a compromised world, a distinctive life, an influential life, a powerful life, a great life. And remarkably, this promise extends to us because it is fulfilled in the gospel. Because this wouldn't be the last time that God would choose an unlikely woman to carry a promised child. It's what we celebrate at Christmas 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ, or thousands of years later rather, Jesus Christ would be born to a poor young woman from a despised community. She would supernaturally conceive a son. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. And so all the greatness and power that comes to our lives comes through faith in the fulfillment of this promise, Jesus Christ, just as it came to Abraham through faith in God's promise. That's why if you go to the New Testament in the book of Galatians, Paul, the apostle, is writing to a church who is tempted to think that it was through their own ability that they would begin to write their own lists of their good deeds in order to submit it to God to secure blessings for their life. In contrast to that mentality, Paul reminds them, saying, this is absolutely impossible. You cannot bring about the supernatural work of God. And so Paul reminds them in Galatians 3, 5 through 7, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. See, the greatness of God's promise is the basis of our faith. And that's an encouraging thought. Because here's the key, and this is very practical. The greatness did not come from Abraham. It did not come from his ability to create anything. And that's one of the crucial distinctions of Christian faith and what shapes your life is that it's all based on the call, promise, and ability of God. Which is really important because We often talk about people having great faith as if it's as natural to them as being an introvert or an extrovert. Like, you know, they take a personality test and what comes out, you're like, oh, you're an achiever. You're a futurist and you are a woman of great faith. Like it doesn't come out on the personality test, but oftentimes we assume that it does. Oh, it just must be naturally easy for that man or that woman because they've been around the block for a while to just have great faith. Oh, she's a woman of great faith. Oh, he's a man of great faith. But listen, friends, it is not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith that strengthens you. It's how trustworthy, how great the thing is in which you place your faith, which strengthens you. I remember taking my kids on the 
their, their first flight when they were younger, and naturally you're a little afraid. And so you get there in your seat and you kind of buckle up and there's this fear and anxiety, like, man, how is this like giant tube going to like go into the sky? Naturally, there's some fear. But as you tell your children, as I told my children, like, hey, the seatbelts are secure. This thing's made out of this particular kind of metal. This is how it's designed. It's got these, these jets. As I'm filling them in and these pilots have to be specially trained, what I'm, nothing changed about my children. My children didn't like muster up any kind of great, you know, ability within themselves, nor did they change their attitude in themselves. It was as I was assuring them and telling them about the security and the greatness of the machine that they were in, their hearts to be became more and more at peace. The way in which we strengthen our faith, friends, is not by looking at ourselves or just beating ourselves up saying, I've got to have great faith. I've got to have great faith. Great faith is produced by looking and trusting in great promises. And that's why a promise like Genesis 12 is so important for us. It's God saying to this couple, though you may be at a dead end, I will bring a great nation through you. Which is encouraging because we see in Abraham and Sarah that no natural advantage can enhance or bring about the promise of God. And no human weakness can stop it. That is so encouraging for me. Because here, this is a vision that is so big that only God could fulfill it. So this morning, how many of us are worried about... Don't raise your hand. (laughs) How many of us, when we think about the future, whether far or near, we're just full of anxiety? You look at the world. you, You read the news. You look at your friends, your family, maybe your relational world has just been turned upside down. How many of us are worried? I know I do. Oftentimes what keeps me up at night or wakes me up early in the morning is my anxiety and my worry. But what I need to do is to look again anew and afresh at the staggering greatness of God and the greatness of what he has promised, which brings calm to a worried heart. Like the theologian Joseph Parker once said, great lives are trained by great promises. Great lives are trained by great promises. It must have seemed incredible to Abraham and Sarah that God would bless them as a couple unable to have children to become a nation And yet that's just what he did. He's that powerful. He's that great. But what kind of nation would this be? Many of us might say, well, yes, I understand that God is powerful, but I'm not so sure he's going to use his power for me. Well, that's the second lesson. Your faith increases as you remember, first, that his promise is great. Secondly, that his promise is good. His promise is actually good. What does it say at the end of verse 2 and 3 of our text? He says, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I'm able to do that. I'm God. I'm powerful. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, at the heart of this, this promise is to bring life to and through Abraham and Sarah. 
And the way in which this goodness comes is by entering into a relationship with God himself. It's one of the reasons I love this this passage. All these promises are connected to what we celebrate in the Christmas season. That Israel did not rise up to the task and fulfill the mission, nor were Abraham and Sarah able to look within themselves. What we celebrate at Christmas is an absolute miracle. A miracle that happened 2,000 years ago. To connect this Abrahamic promise again to the book of Galatians, Paul explicitly says that Christ's coming was a fulfillment of this promise to do what? Just to show God's power? To show his greatness? Yes, but also to show his goodness. Paul says in Galatians 3, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, that's a statement, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Because of course, from Abraham and Sarah came the nation of Israel and from the nation of Israel came Jesus Christ. And the New Testament says that every one of us, we share in the, not only the greatness, but also the goodness of this promise through faith. We become a part of God's family through faith. This may seem so basic and simple, but the more you think about it, it is absolutely staggering how God has orchestrated things throughout history in such a way to bring about our good is phenomenal. Because you know what that means? It means that all that God has, he engages for your good. Isn't that crazy? All that God has, his greatness, his power, he engages for your good. And for his glory. See, it would be one thing if God was willing, but he wasn't able. Like, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I can't. My hands are tied. It's 2021. It's a hard year. I only had like three miracles this year, and they're all used up. I did it in the spring. Or it'd be another thing if he was all powerful, but he wasn't very personal. Then like we wouldn't know how he's going to use his power. But he's both powerful and personal. His promise is both great and it is good to bless you, make you a part of his family. Listen, this promise is greater than anything you will hear or see or experience in this Christmas season. Because don't you see the the God who holds our universe together is not only aware of your life and concerned with your life, he's radically committed to your life to bless you and to cause you to be a blessing to others. Yeah, amen. (laughs) Now, the word blessed is, of course, we all know, a word that seems to have risen to unprecedented popularity. I had a look on on Instagram this week, and apparently 140 million people feel blessed at this moment, at least when I checked. Most of the time, the word blessed is used as a way of bragging while humble, you're like, oh, I feel so blessed that I got like courtside, you know, season tickets to the Lakers game. Hashtag blessed. Like, you're like, wow, you really just wanted to share all that with us. 
It's like the person that goes around to you like, guys, I know in this time of economic hardship, like I got a triple raise. Oh, I'm just so blessed. And you're like, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I couldn't wait to hear that news because I'm struggling in my job right now. And you're like, wait, am I blessed? I mean, Christians use this word all the time. We pray that our meals will be blessed. We talk about desiring that our jobs would be blessed. So what does it mean? Well, the word blessed occurs over 500 times in the Bible, and it is used to describe everything from good weather, crops, and babies, all the way to salvation and resurrection. And sometimes the blessing is a little unexpected. Times when men and women had to actually go through hardship in their lives, as we read about in the Old Testament, but hardships which produced things that were more fruitful than they ever could have been if they had not gone through the pain and the difficulty. That is also a blessing. Because a blessing is simply this. A blessing is any work of God that accomplishes his will by helping people grow and to do his work. That's what a blessing is. And when I understand it that way, that even the difficult times have a framework. Even the times where there's mystery in my life can, even though I don't see it in the moment, they begin to make sense when they look at it in the larger narrative of Scripture. But there's an opposite of blessing, and that is cursing. Notice there's a curse in this passage there. A curse is against all those who align themselves against God and against the people of God. And thus they will experience the consequence of that rejection. There is a warning here. But notice, friends, even this warning is good because it shows that God has the best interests of people at heart by calling them to repent and to turn and warning them if they do not. It is out of God's mercy that he warns. So it's not just as if we only get great stuff from God. To be blessed is to be with God. And being with him, we become a blessing to others. And that is good. Through faith in him, we can know that he engages all that he has for our good. Though we may not see it in the moment. In fact, Abraham began to wonder if he was really blessed after the declaration of this promise. Like many of us are like, okay, I know the story of Abraham. Yes, God blessed him. And we turn a page of scripture, but we think five minutes has gone by when in fact years have gone by. And as it often does for us, so it did for Abraham, that doubt began to creep into his heart. And so a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, God has to remind Abraham of the promise again. Because by this time, no child has yet arrived. And so Abraham expresses his concern. Look at Genesis 15, 1 through 3. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But, Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children. 
So a servant in my household will be my heir. Think about this moment. Like God has made this promise. You're like, yes, it's great and it's also good. But time goes by and you're like, what the heck? My translation of the Hebrew. Which we've all been there and felt. I mean, man, how many times have we been there even in the last few years? I remember a point in time before we moved back to Ventura, which was just a year ago now. We were still in London. We're in the middle of lockdown. And the guy who is now pastoring Reality London, his name is Bijan Mirtalui. He's awesome. He's doing a great job, by the way. The church has even grown. How amazing is that? Praise God. Yeah, praise God for that. But there was a moment, he's going to kill me for saying this, but when we're in lockdown and everything's crazy, he calls me up. He's like, hey, I'm just going to hit pause on receiving this offer. And I'm like, oh, no problem, because I've already planned everything for me to go back to California. No problem. No problem. You just take your time. You just pray. Do all, take all the time you want. And there was a few weeks where I was like, once again, a common prayer for me, what? have I done? Anyone else pray that? Like I wake up in the morning. Some of you are like, hallelujah, God. I usually wake up saying, what am I doing? And all these people are sharing amazing testimonies of like what was happening during that period of time. And I would just wake up and, you know, they're like in lockdown. They're like, I learned to make banana bread in like two hours. And, and I was like, great. I cried in the shower again this morning. Does that count? <laughs> True story. <laughs> I was just like, what are we doing? Because let's be honest. I know the promises of the Bible. I know, yes, God, he's going to do this. Yep, he says he's going to do that. I can quote you the verse. I might even be able to say it in Greek. But I don't believe it right now. I don't feel engaged with it. His promise is good. I know it's great but how do I know it will come to pass? Well, here's the good news of the Abrahamic covenant and what we celebrate at Christmas time. His promise is not only great and good, but lastly, his promise is guaranteed. And for me, it's probably one of the most encouraging things for my faith right now. And I wonder if it may be for you. Because at this point in the story, we must ask, on whose shoulders does the greatness and goodness of this promise rest. There's a hint to it in our text this morning, and it's in the pronouns. Three times God says, I will, I will, I will. He doesn't say Abram will. He doesn't say Sarah I will. He says, I will, I will, I will. The promise was rooted in what God would do, not what Abraham would do but where's the proof? Where's the guarantee? The answer actually comes in chapter 15, where the covenant becomes official. Now, there were different ways covenants were made in the ancient world where there's no legal entities, you know, overseeing transactions between parties. So one way to make a promise between two parties and make it official was called the cutting of the covenant. And that's what we see in Genesis 15. Let me read it to you. Verses seven through 10. And Abram said to him, or God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, 
a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. You read that story and you think the Old Testament is crazy. What is this? Like, that's not the verse you put on your coffee cup, you know? It's like, and he cut the heifers in half. (laughs) It's like on your fridge. (laughs) But one of the signs back then that a promise was made official was you would split an animal and you would place the halves side by side and the two parties would walk through. They would walk in between them. Why? It was a way of formally, even visually saying, may I be like this animal. If I do not fulfill my end of the bargain, may I be cut off if I do not fulfill my end of the agreement. May I be split if I do not fulfill the covenant. There would be curses if either side failed. Then may these terrible things happen to them. Abraham knows this. He knows what God's getting at. So as Abraham prepares the animal, something totally unexpected happened. Abraham has a vision. But in the vision, something remarkable takes place. In that same chapter, verse 17 and 18, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Abraham has this vision. A fire pot, which represents the presence of God, goes through them between the halves by itself. What does this mean? It's God's way of saying, I will take full responsibility for the fulfillment of this covenant. I will do it. I will take the full weight of this covenant upon myself. And as time goes by, we do know the story tells us they would have a son. His name was Isaac. God would fulfill that part of the promise. But we look at how that line continues. It became a great nation. And even though the men and women who were in that family line failed, God protected them and their family line all the way up to the arrival of Jesus because God is the guarantor. And for all the failures in our own lives, we remember that God is the one who provides. He will make good on his promise. We have fallen short. We do not always fulfill our end. We should be cut off. But the heart of the gospel is this. Jesus came for us. And when he came, he was cut off when he went to the cross so that we might be brought near. On that day, Jesus walked through the sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice. And in dying on the cross, he secured and guaranteed all the blessings of God's great promises for you. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. It means you and I, like, I can know that though these promises are great, they're good, they are all guaranteed for me. And so Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes 
and through Christ are amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. And how does Abraham respond? By faith. It said, Abraham believed God. Friends, this is what faith is all about. It's trusting in the great, good, and guaranteed promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian, and you might be wondering, how can I have a relationship with God? Do I need to like write up my list? No. Tear up your list like little Jimmy. But instead of trying to manipulate God, you trust him. You trust in Jesus today. Ask him this morning, save me, Jesus, not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done. And you will be saved. You will be forgiven, no matter your past, no matter your failure. For those of us who have been walking by faith, we say, well, how can my faith be encouraged? How can I be sure that he's going to bring about renewal and redemption for me? Look at the guarantee. The answer for you this morning is faith, not in yourself, but in God. Because what often chokes our faith is trying to stay in control of our lives. That's what chokes the channel of blessings in our lives. We try to stay in control. God, I'm only going to trust you as long as you let me have a say in how my life goes. And some of us are there. But in that case, you're not receiving the promise. You're negotiating, which I'm really good at with God. But this is a call to stop. Or another way we choke out the blessings is thinking that it all rests on us or it rests on other people. Listen, in fact, some of us, we lose faith, not because we're waiting on God, but because we're waiting on other people to do what only God can do. You may feel this morning that your situation is dark and difficult and you don't see any way for God to redeem it. It may even seem impossible. But it is precisely the impossibility of our circumstance that should cause us to turn to God and his great promises, his good promises, and simply trust him. We do not receive the promise by working for God, but being confident that God works on our behalf. We are not saved by making great promises to God. We are saved because of God's great promises to us. We are not made great by what we do. We are made great by what God does. And that's why the great missionary many years ago, Hudson Taylor, when he was introduced as a man of great faith, he said, I don't have great faith. I have faith in a great God. And so, friends, I invite you this morning, if you want to be encouraged in your faith, you need to transfer trust away from yourselves and away from your expectations on other people And you need to place your faith in him and remember that his promise is great. It's good and it's guaranteed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I just have a sense that there are some who, for whom it is difficult right now to trust in you because of promises that have been broken by other people. And it may be those very things that cause it 
to be very difficult to place their faith in you. God, I pray that you would heal them this morning. That they would hear your Holy Spirit say, though everyone else has broken their promise, I never will. I pray for those men and women right now that you would heal them. God, I pray for those of us who are overly anxious and worried and fearful about the future. That we would take heart, not in what we can do, but in what you have done and what you will do. God, I pray that you'd strengthen us now. Holy Spirit, we invite you to shine a light on our hearts. Any area in which we need to put our faith in you, reveal it so that we might repent and turn to you and find refreshment for our souls. Spirit of God, would you do that now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.